Our text this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. If you please stand with me and give diligent attention, for this is the very Word of God. It is completely without error, completely sufficient, and it is a guide to our lives. Hear now the Word of the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us this word and creates in us this fruit of the Spirit. We pray that this word would take root in our lives and would bear much fruit in days, weeks, and years to come. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may be familiar with, in the corporate world, the entire industry that has arisen around mission statements, purpose statements. And some corporations go to such lengths that they change them every few years modify them in small amounts, sometimes in large amounts, to draw attention to them. They're trying to set a course for their company. And what most companies do in this time is they come together and they brainstorm and they try and think of what best represents what they want to do. Some of you may have also noticed that in our bulletin each week, we have in black rectangle with white print a mission statement. There's a fundamental difference, though, about the mission statement or the purpose statement of Christ's church. And that is, we didn't sit around and try and think of what would best express where we want to go or what we want to do. We tried to express the purpose that the scriptures point us to as a church and as believers. And as you read through it here, it says that Christ's church exists to make mature disciples who will worship know and serve Christ so that His church and kingdom are powerfully extended in Katy and beyond. Now, I think that's an excellent statement. You may look at it, though, and wonder to yourself, what does it mean to make a disciple? What is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? And you may even have it run through your minds. I need to know what a disciple looks like so that when I spot one, I'll know it. What I would like us to see from our text this morning is what a disciple looks like. But the thing is, a disciple isn't just someone else out there. A disciple is you and me. We are disciples as well. Part of what Christ Church is about is about making mature disciples, both ones that are sitting here now and ones that the Lord has for us out and about in the West Houston area. So if we are going to make 
mature disciples, it would behoove us to know what a disciple looks like. And Paul has given to us a wonderful description based upon one who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit as to what a follower of Christ, what a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ should look like. We're going to look at three things then this morning. The first thing is what a disciple looks like is that a disciple bears fruit. Word of warning here, those of you that are used to and desire balance, we're going to be lopsided this morning. We're going to spend a bit more time in point one because Paul has a very exhaustive list. Perhaps some of you children have even had an opportunity to memorize this list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a wonderful list. We're going to look and see that a disciple is one who bears fruit. But the second thing is, we're going to see that Paul says that a disciple is also one who kills sin. A disciple is a killer of sin. But then finally, we are going to see that a a disciple is... Well, I guess... (laughs) There's a typo in my point there. We're going to finally see that a disciple is one who walks by the Spirit. A disciple is one who walks by the Spirit. So a disciple is one who bears fruit, one who kills sin, and one who walks by the Spirit. Well, then, let us then look now, beginning at what it means to bear fruit as a disciple, beginning here at verse 22. I want you to remember that last week we looked at things that mark those who are not followers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin that we are to kill and to get rid of. And now here Paul moves from vices to virtues. And those virtues can be, I think, grouped together in three categories. The first is that a disciple bears fruit in his being, in who he is, and in his relationship to God. But that's not where it ends. Being a disciple of God is about more than just relating to God. It's about relating to others as well. So we see that a disciple bears fruit in his relationships to others. And then finally, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is conducting your life in a way in which a watching world can see and see the difference that the Lord Jesus Christ makes. So we see that a disciple bears fruit in his conduct. First, in his being. Paul begins here by saying, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice right from the beginning of the text the difference between the list of virtues and the list of vice that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at the works of the flesh. Here we look at the fruit of the Spirit. You see, we might look at the vices that are listed and say, well... I'm not prone to some of these. Maybe some others I can pick and choose among my list things to work on. But here with the fruit of the Spirit, it is singular. There is one fruit of the Spirit that contains all of these things. You see, fruit of the Spirit is essential to being a believer. It is not a human product. It is not the work that we do. It is the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. It is spontaneous and springs up from being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, being a disciple is a process. There is progress to be made. So we don't expect everyone to show the exact same degree of fruit in all areas. But we do expect to see from believers in the Lord Jesus Christ 
these traits. They are all found together. It's very different than gifts of the Spirit. You see, one might have a gift of administration, and another may not. One may have a gift of hospitality, and another may not. And those gifts are brought up so that collectively we have all the gifts of the Spirit that we need. But not so the fruit. Every believer has all of these fruits of the Spirit. The first, of course, is love. It should be no coincidence as to why Paul puts love first here as the fruit of the Spirit. Many commentators say that Paul could have simply put period after love in the fruit of the Spirit. For, after all, love is the sum of all fruit. It is the sum of the law. It contains all of these fruits of the Spirit in themselves. It is the love of Christ being formed in us. You see, Jesus Christ is love. And therefore, the Holy Spirit forms love in us. We have a wedding coming up this week, and virtually every wedding that one goes to, I'm sure that you've had it happen at least once, will read 1 Corinthians 13. It is a lovely chapter on love. There's only one problem with it being read at a wedding. It gives us, I think, a bit of a wrong view about love. We view love as something romantic only, primarily, between a man and a woman. We view it, therefore, sometimes overly emotionally. But you see, 1 Corinthians 13 is not just the love chapter. It is a portrait that Paul paints of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that chapter this afternoon. At all of the characteristics of love, and you can see our Lord Jesus Christ as he acted them out in the Gospels. You see, love is a fruit of the Spirit. But not just love, joy is also a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is something that wells up in the believer because of the work of the Spirit. It is not to be confused with happiness. It is not dependent upon circumstances. You see, everyone, at some time or another, feels happy. It's dependent completely upon circumstances. You probably even experienced this in your own life. Something as simple as you wake up in the morning and the sun is shining and you feel better. Or you wake up and it's cloudy and you're a bit down. I spent a few years living in the city of Chicago going to school and we set, in the early 90s, a record for most consecutive days without sunshine. It was overcast for 35 straight days. At least that was, I think at the time, the record for Chicago. And you could see as the days wore on, people getting more and more cranky, miserable, short with each other. But you see, that shouldn't happen to the believer. Because the believer has a joy that is not dependent on circumstances. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that we are to have joy in great suffering. It is this kind of joy that has the Apostle Paul, as he's in prison, hurt, bloody, beaten, say to his compatriots, let's sing a hymn. You see, Paul knew what this joy was. He knew that no matter what his circumstances were, he could abound because of joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy is linked to hope. It is linked to righteousness. It is linked to reconciliation in Romans 5. You see, joy is something that wells up spontaneously from this Christian because of his relationship to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Paul then moves on to peace. 
Peace is another adjective, noun, that gets misinterpreted very often, especially today. If you ask most people what peace is, they will describe it as, in some way, the absence of war. Have you thought about that in our current circumstances? Peace is described as only stopping war. Nothing else is given any thought to. Not what would happen afterwards or in between. It's only the absence of war. And this is so far short from the biblical definition of peace. The biblical definition of peace has the connotation of wholeness, integrity, wholeness in all of one's relationships. The Christian has peace. He has wholeness of relationships. He has peace not just with God, but because he has peace with God, the fruit of the Spirit wells up in him, and he has peace at home. Yes, it is no longer the war at home. There is peace in the home. He has peace at church. This might seem very difficult to think about, especially given the fact that Paul deals with so many churches. Corinth comes immediately to mind, where there is warfare in the church. There is biting. We see it even here again in this chapter 5. Provoking, envying. You see, Paul is saying to the Galatians, If you have the Spirit, and you do by your testimony, a fruit of that should be peace, and it should be peace at home and in the church, and even, yes, even in the world. For Paul says in Romans 12, that as much as it lies within you, be at peace with all men. That is a fruit of the Spirit. A disciple bears fruit also in his relationships. Notice as the list goes on, a disciple is marked by patience. This is a quality that God has. There's, it's not really an English word, but I think it's the best way to describe patience. Everyone knows what I mean when I say short-tempered, right? You know someone like that. You may even have been like that. Being patient is being long. You see, the biblical metaphor of that is that God is long of nose. You've seen someone when they get really angry, their nostrils start to flare. Well, God isn't like that. He doesn't flare his nostrils with us. He's patient. He's persevering. An illustration of this might be with Noah and the ark. Do you remember how Peter describes that in his first letter? He says that the Patience, the long-suffering of God, persevered while Noah was building the ark. Noah took a very long time to build that ark. And God had already determined to punish the wickedness that was so wicked that it came up before him. But he exhibited patience, long-suffering, even toward those who were impenitent, wicked enemies of his. Now, if that's what God does, what should we look like then? As ones in whom the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. We ought to look like that, to display that. Being patient is to be focused upon the promise of God, Hebrews 6.12 tells us. 
It is to be looking forward and waiting for the promise of God. Being patient also has application. You know, when you preach a sermon, you don't just preach to others. You preach to yourself. Paul has this to say in 2 Timothy 4, in verse 2. He says, preach the word. Amen. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, ministers, elders, fathers, as you teach, you are to exhibit this kind of patience with others. Patience. But we're not just to be patient, we're also to be kind. Notice that a fruit of the Spirit is kindness. It describes how God relates to us. It is His goodness to us, His merciful character to us. He shows it to us, and we are in We are enjoined to remain in the kindness of God. And what better way to remain in the kindness of God than to show kindness to others, to demonstrate that. For after all, it is the kindness of God, Paul tells us in Romans 2, that leads to repentance. Do you desire to see conversions? Do you desire to see people in your family know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you desire to have an impact in this community? Then Paul would say to you, be kind. It seems so simple, yet it is so far from us so often. Kindness is a characteristic of God. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Closely related to that is goodness. We might think of goodness in the sense of generosity. A good biblical metaphor for that would be, goodness is the kind of characteristic that allows us to go the second mile with people. We persevere. We show goodness. It is the exact opposite of envy. You see, goodness desires the prosperity of others. Goodness rejoices in the good fortune and blessing and kind providence that has come to others. This is something that is solely a fruit of the Spirit. How do we know this? For Paul tells us in Romans 3 and verse 12 that no unbeliever is good. You know that litany where Paul talks about how all are under sin? One of his comments is that none exhibits goodness. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is impossible to exhibit goodness. A disciple bears fruit in his being and in his relationships, but also in his conduct. The list goes on to faithfulness. You see, because God is faithful, we are called to faithfulness. Faithfulness is a stewardship issue, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4. A believer is faithful to use his gifts and talents for the building up of the kingdom. He is faithful. All of us are stewards in some respect. We are stewards of what the Lord has given to us. Our treasure, our time, our abilities are all for the building up of the kingdom. And we are to be faithful in having received those gifts. One might even go so far as to say... The hallmark of the ministry is faithfulness. Above everything else, faithfulness will mark a ministry that is blessed by God. 
Not necessarily success, not necessarily recognition. Ministers need to remember that, but so do congregations. We need to be faithful as we minister in this community. I have a friend who is in the bulletin we're praying for. He's a pastor in the Clinton, Mississippi area. And another friend of mine described him as someone who excels in faithfulness. He said he's good at many things, but only really great at being faithful. Let me tell you, I would give anything to have that said of me 25 years from now. He's a wonderful model of the ministry, not only for a minister, but for the believer. He perseveres. He's always there with a kind word. He is faithful. After all, what is the name given to our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation? He is not only true, he is faithful and true. He ever remains faithful. As we begin to conclude this portion here, gentleness. Gentleness is yet another word that we need, I think, tweak a bit. We think of gentleness, and let's be honest, especially fellows, we think of wimps. Gentleness is not a masculine quality. It's not something I want to be known for. You don't want to be in a crowd and have someone introduce you as, this is the most gentle man I know. And yet, this is a fruit of the Spirit. So what does it mean? Think of it this way. Gentleness is strength under control. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. The power at any moment to call down a legion of angels. But he's completely under control. Never loses his cool. Never flies off the handle. You might also think of Moses. The old translation says that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Same word here, gentleness. What made Moses so gentle and meek? Well, Moses was a man who was subject to unjust criticism continually. And he responded how? Not with rage, but by interceding for others. Note what I say, Christian. Unjust criticism. That is gentleness. As we respond to others that come to us and unjustly criticize our faith, our Lord, our person, our actions. This is gentleness. Gentleness is also teachableness. James says that we are to receive the engrafted word. He says with gentleness we are to receive it. (coughs) We are to be teachable in gentleness. Finally, Paul concludes the list by saying self-control. This is another important point here. When you have this kind of a list, you want to highlight the first word, love, and the last word, self-control. It's a way to help you remember them. They're bookends. Self-control means having powerful passions, but having them under control. You see, a self-controlled person is not stoical. He's not blasé. A Christian is not one who could care less what's going on in the world. Oh, I can't be bothered with what's going on in the Sudan. A Christian is outraged, yet under control. A Christian grieves mightily for the sake of a lost world outside our doors. But he does so under control. 
in order that he might act and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. This is an important mark of the believer. Do you recall the occasion where Paul had a ready-made sermon opportunity for Felix, the Roman governor? We're given the outline of his sermon. You know, Paul was prone to three-point sermons as well. His first point was righteousness. His last point was the coming judgment. But you know what his second point was to Felix? Self-control. Because, see, Felix needed to be righteous. And you know one is righteous because they exhibit self-control. And that's the only way to avoid the coming judgment. This is the fruit of the Spirit. But secondly, a disciple is one who kills sin. Look with me now at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have you ever thought about why the Bible describes fighting sin in this fashion? It says that we are to crucify the flesh and its passions and desires. Why not kill it? Why not, kids, cut its head off? Why not stomp it out? Right? There's a lot of metaphors that we use, right? Think of every metaphor you've ever used in describing a lopsided sports game. Why crucifixion? Well, obviously, there's a tie-in with our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, verse 24 takes us back to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we think about that, we think about a death by crucifixion, the first thing that comes to our mind is that that was not an easy death. It was one of the most difficult ways to achieve someone's death. Beheading was very quick, hanging very quick, drowning very quick. But a crucifixion was hard work. So it is with killing sin. You see, do you remember what we talked about last week? The war that goes on? It's a constant war that we fight. Killing sin is not easy. It is not pleasant, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 11. Killing sin is hard, difficult, not fun work. But it bears fruit. You see, that's how we are to be at killing sin. Not worried if we're not making quick progress. Not worried if it's not as easy as we think it should be. It is supposed to be hard. It is a difficult work. But it's not just a difficult work. It is not a quick work either. You remember that our Lord tells us that we are to take up our cross daily? Paul here might add a commentary upon it and say that not only are we to take up our cross daily, but, Christian, we're to walk with it. We're to carry it. This is not something that is done quickly. It's hard enough to pick up our cross but yet even harder to walk with it. There are no shortcuts to killing sin. I can't think of any plainer way to say it. I can't think of anything that needs to be said more in the Christian church today. We're always trying to find shortcuts to killing sin. If I could only get a certain house, then I'll be safe from covetousness. 
Well, if I only have enough money, then my temptation to steal will be gone. Well, if my children are only grown, then I'll have time to focus. Well, if my job finally sorts itself out, that no, Christian. Those of you that think if you just reach that point, it'll get easy, do yourself some good. Speak to your brothers and sisters here that have walked with the Lord longer than you. (laughs) They're still waiting for it to get easy. They're still waiting to turn the corner. Because this is not quick work. Our culture is completely counter to this. We live in the age of the microwave, the cell phone call, and supersonic jets. We want a solution to our lives, our marriages, our parenting, everything now. And we want it in five steps we can remember. That's not how the Christian life works. That's not what a disciple looks like. A disciple, a picture of sanctification, we might say, of killing sin, looks more like a tree. It grows slow, deep, tall, broad. You go every day and look at the tree and it doesn't even change. doesn't even change. doesn't even change. Ten years later, someone comes by and says, when did that tree get so big? Same thing with children, right? You see your children every day. Someone comes and visits, hasn't seen them in six months. Wow, you've shot up. The Christian life is a slow, steady progress. There are no shortcuts to it. But praise be to God, killing sin is also not doubtful work. Notice what Paul says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Think of what despair if this said, those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires will belong to Jesus Christ. You notice what Paul does? He's going to do it again in a moment. It's telling you who you are so you know what you are capable of doing. He's not saying do that you may live. He's saying because you live, do. You see, the task of killing sin is assigned to those who already belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who already have the Holy Spirit, who are already exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. So take heart, Christian. Killing sin, while it is not easy work and not quick work, is not doubtful work. It is certain. This obviously links us to chapter 2 and verse 19, where Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ, for I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, because Christ has died, because Christ has crucified sin, we can crucify sin. It is grounded in the work of Christ. And then finally, we see here that a disciple is one who walks by the Spirit. In verses 25 and 26, he says, If we live by the Spirit, there's that indicative again, this is who you are, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is what you ought to do. This is my command to you, Paul would say. And notice that this walking is grounded in the Spirit. This is a typical Pauline progression. And I would encourage you, as you preach to yourself throughout the week, parents, as you instruct your children, husbands and wives, as you encourage each other, remember this order. Remind yourself and remind others who you are and who they are. 
That is where the power begins. Paul always begins with who we are in Jesus Christ and who we are with respect to the Holy Spirit. But he never stops there. He moves then on to what we are to do based upon that. Because we live, we are also to walk. A metaphor that immediately comes to mind from the Scriptures is that of the vine and the branches in John 15. You see, the branches grow because they're attached to the vine. It's a part of being a branch. You grow. So it is true with the believer. Because you are united to Christ, you are to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You are to grow in killing sin, and you are to grow in walking by the Spirit. This is a sober reminder. Because if you have come here today and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should not waste your time trying to exhibit fruit of the Spirit. You should not begin there. You should not try and clean up your act. You see, in order to exhibit the traits of a disciple, in order to show the fruit of the Spirit, in order to kill sin, in order to be free from that burden, you must be born again. You must be in Christ. It is those who belong to Christ Jesus that exhibit these traits. You must be a disciple of Christ. You must begin there. This walking in the Spirit is not only grounded in the Spirit, but it is also worked out in our life. Walking is the outward manifestation of the truth of living in the Spirit. It's how you know that it's true. Some of you that are involved in the sciences, especially in laboratory experiments, see this firsthand all the time. How do you know something is going on, a certain chemical reaction? It's because the tube changes color, or fizzes, or doesn't fizz. It does something. It's evidence of what is there. So it is true with the believer. This walking by the Spirit is evidence that we are living by the Spirit. And this command, notice, is not optional. Paul does not say... If we live by the Spirit, and we're really dedicated, let us walk. If we live by the Spirit and have received the second blessing, let us walk. It's not an option. It is a command to all Christians. Now, let's think about this practically for a moment. There is a sense in which one of the things we do with respect to spiritual gifts is we say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of administration, so my desk is a mess. I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I don't have people over as often as other people. I don't have this gift. I don't have that gift. But you see, you can't say that with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not an option to say, well, Paul, I'm sorry, I just wasn't given the gift of patience. So I'm going to snap at everybody in church. When the fruits came around, I didn't get any love, so I'm just going to be callous to people all the time. It's just how it is. I didn't get that fruit. I didn't get the fruit of gentleness. So I'm going to jump down people's throats any opportunity I get. No, you can't say that. It is the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot. It is something that we all have that is worked out in our life. But it's not just worked out in our life in a willy-nilly fashion either. 
as we begin to conclude, our last thing to look at here is the importance of discipline in walking by the Spirit. You see, we walk, but we walk by discipline. The translation here, as many of them do, hides just a bit of the connotation of the word. This word does mean walk. But it's often used of walking in the context of soldiers walking. We might even translate it marching. Some paraphrases will say, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been in the armed forces. Some of you have watched people in the armed forces. Where a group of soldiers walks as one, right? Their legs move all at the same time. Their arms move all at the same time. Their heads turn all at the same time. They are all in perfect step and harmony. All of us have seen some story where at the beginning of boot camp, this is one of the things that's ingrained in them. They're to be all as one. Now you see, a soldier can not only walk in step. What else can a soldier do? Some of you that have been in the armed forces. They can run in step too, can't they? You can move quickly, but you do it in step. And as one man has helpfully put it, that when a soldier, when an army, when a group is walking in step, when they are marching in step, they don't need to be worried about where they're going or how they're going to get there. All they have to do is stay in step, and they'll be fine. So it is true with the Christian life. If you, Christian, today are burdened by, I don't know where we're going. I don't know how we're going to get there. I have no idea how we're going to get this building put up on that property. Stay in step. Stay in step with the Holy Spirit. He is, as one man has put it, God's drill sergeant. He's taking us where we need to go and how we need to get there. All we need to do is stay in step with Him. Now, there's another thing, too, that comes to our minds about soldiers who are in step. If you've seen any military movie, you've seen a scene like this, where a group is marching, and inevitably what happens to one man? He falls. And what happens just as quickly? Two go down, and they pick him up, and they keep him in step. What a picture of the Christian life. We help to keep each other in step to encourage one another by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And if we are in step, we will not be bumping into one another. We will not be poking and prodding. We will not be, as Paul puts it, conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We will be in step, marching toward a common goal. God's army, as it were, the church militant, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, walking, keeping in step, Avoiding all problems. This is the life of a disciple. A disciple is one who desires and manifests the fruit of the Spirit in himself and in his relationship to others. Who desires to be known by these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And again, as with the list of vices, it's not exhaustive. He says, against such things there is no law. There are many other places in the scripture where we could describe what the life of a believer is like. This is a, not a comprehensive list, but an illustrative list. And a disciple is one who's concerned to kill sin. You cannot be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and be flippant with your sin. I have said it to you before, and I will say it to you again. I'm on good authority. John and I saw it from a letter this week from John MacArthur. Same quote. You must always be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Because that's true, and it's biblical. And we're not just called to focus upon our sin and to put that to death. We're called to life, and to life in the Spirit, and to walking in the Spirit, and walking with each other. This is the life of a disciple. This is the life of a disciple-driven church. A church that manifests the fruit of the Spirit, that seeks to put to death sin in its midst, and seeks to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. May God grant us the grace by the power of His Spirit to be such a church, to make such disciples here in Katy and Houston and beyond. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us and the way in which especially you describe the work of your Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us this day, that we might know you better, that we might kill our sin, and that we might walk and step with the Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.